Hey, my name's Alex and welcome to my podcast, Alex Listens. In this podcast, by myself, cooped up in a room in self-isolation, I try to talk about uh, nothing, um, uh, about philosophy and ethics and race and identity politics and that kind of stuff. Um, and I also do cool interviews like this one. Um, but before I get onto that, a few quick announcements. Um, one thing, one thing that's really weird about podcasts is that they can be listened to at any time, anywhere in the world. Um, and some of you are going to be listening to this in isolation amid the coronavirus, uh, amid the coronavirus. Um, and yeah, um, that's, that's okay. That's, I mean, the coronavirus isn't okay, um, and we all have to be uh, following the news carefully and respecting boundaries and, you know, wash your hands, nothing new. Um, but the weird thing is that you might be listening to this in the future at a time where um, things have calmed down, if they ever do calm down. Um, and what's even, str- what's even more strange is that uh, this interview was actually recorded before things kind of kicked off in the West. Um, and I specify in the West because things had really kicked off uh, in the East. Um, and, you know, there, there's uh, the New York Times have reported that China delayed its... Uh, it lied about how early it knew about the coronavirus. It said that it, it was only made aware of it. Well, it said that it knew about it a month after it actually did. And so I guess things kicked off in the East a bit earlier. Um, uh, yeah. And another... Th- yeah. So there are a few kind of moments where we're like, uh, when I say we, I mean myself and Eileen, the person who I interviewed, um, uh, there are a few moments where we're like, oh, coronavirus, oh, like that thing that's making some people cancel their plans. And then fast forward uh, a month, I guess I recorded it about a month ago. So fast forward a month to where we are now, um, things have radically, radically changed um, and it feels things feel a lot more real, um, than they ever have. Um, yeah. So, uh, one last thing before I begin talking about this actual episode, um, I, I make, (laughs) I make this podcast obviously. Um, but, uh, I, I call for the support of people sometimes. Um, and I have a Patreon page and the reason why I'm talking about Patreon is because, um, if you're enjoying the podcast, um, don't just freeload, you know? Um, I mean, you can by all means. Um, but you know, if you're enjoying it, uh, consider, consider contributing a bit if it's within your means, obviously. Um, you know, a tea, think of it as just a tea a month. Um, and in times like these where, you know, capitalism seems to be falling to pieces, countries are struggling to organize stimulus packages, um, uh, people are without jobs, people are having to completely change their lifestyles. We, we realize that, you know, there are some challenges to, um, there are some things that need to be reassessed if we are going to keep living in a neoliberal model. And one thing that I think, and I'm not, I'm not saying this for purely self-interested reasons, although, you know, maybe it sounds like it, but one thing that needs to change is the relationship of people on the left to patronage, um, and obviously, well, I'm saying people on the left because I don't think there are too many conservatives listening to my podcast. Um, if there are, hey, um, send me an email. Let's have a chat about your politics. Um, yeah, so 
yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. If you're enjoying the podcast, think about supporting it because creators need support. Um, I'll put a link in the bio. Um, otherwise you can support me by sharing the podcast with friends. Um, leaving a review. I get, I keep getting really weird reviews about my voice. <laughs> I, they're kind of flattering, but people, uh, yeah, I guess go and have a look for yourself. Um, I think you can only see reviews based on the area you're in. So if you're listening outside of Australia, you might not be able to see the strange reviews about my voice being, um, yeah, I won't, I won't, I won't flatter myself, um, on, on my own podcast, but, um, Yeah. Okay. So today I spoke with Professor, well, not today, but you know, a month ago, but I guess now today I spoke with uh, Professor Eileen Barker. She is 83 years old. She is the world authority on cults, sects, religious organizations, minority religious organizations, um, and that kind of stuff. And we spoke about, uh, you know, what cults are, why the word cult has been driven out of academia, um, why people are attracted to cults. I, and when I say people, I mean, you know, people who actually join cults themselves. And then from the outside, um, you know, it's a, it's a point of contention for many people. Like, uh, there's a kind of, um, there's a cult phobia almost when people hear the word cult. Um, you know, it's often used to describe something. It's a pejorative term. Um, it's an insult. Um, so yeah, if, if you're into cults, um, if you're in a cult yourself, um, (laughs) I'm not sure I, I know there was, there was this guy from my high school. Apparently he, he went to America, um, and joined a cult. Um, anyway, I don't really know anyone else who's been in a cult. Um, but Eileen met lots of people. Um, she spent time with lots of cults, studying them, Um, and I guess one other thing that we spoke about was brainwashing. Um, so if you're wanting to learn some psychological techniques, um, yeah, uh, go no further. Um, you've found, you've found the right place. (laughs) Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, enjoy the episode and, um, yeah. Bye. One, two, three, four. What did I have for breakfast? What did you have for breakfast? I had muesli for breakfast, and my husband went to the supermarket okay. and found that they hadn't got any anymore. Oh wow! You ate it all? No, no, no. They've run out of it oh, in the they? supermarket. They run. They couldn't get any fish pies or anything. Are you serious? People are stocking up. Ah, oh, yeah. This awful coronavirus mm. frenzy. Um. Well, hello, Eileen. Hello. Um. How are you apart from missing out on your breakfast? Well, I'm fine until I stand up. <laughs> and then what happens? My legs give up. Ah, wow. Okay, well, hopefully <laughs> the music can bring you back on your feet. Um, that was that was not intentional. Um, but yeah, I guess um, the reason why I was... I, I, the re- I, first of all, thank you very much for making the time to come and talk to me. Um, it's a real treat to have someone who um, has been thinking about something for a very long time um because <laughs> people think about something for well, well I, i'm not sure um maybe not for a very long time maybe briefly but it seems they might like, not have been as old as me <laughs> yeah well hi i i realized that i think you have about 60 years on me and with that imagine a lot of insight into the world but um for people who don't know 
who you are. How would you describe yourself to them? Officially, I'm Professor Emeritus of the Sociology of Religion at the London School of Economics. Okay. And, and because academic titles are often empty and you can't really tell what someone is doing with those titles, what does that actually mean? Well, I've been studying minority religions, what people call cults and sects, for the past, well, since the 70s. Okay. Late 60s, perhaps. Early 70s, anyway. And in 88, I set up an organization, an educational charity called Inform, which is now based at King's. And we try to provide information that's as objective and contextualized and up-to-date as possible to people who might want to know. Mm. Okay. Um, and before we move on to Inform, um, I think what would be very helpful in this conversation would be a a definitional distinction between cults and r- religious new religious organizations. So what? how would you frame either of those terms? Well, of course, any concept is man-made, right. sometimes women-made, but usually man-made. Right. And um, it's really what people call it. Um, cults has been used in the sociology of religion technically in opposition to a sect, both of which are in tension with society. Mm. And they're opposed to church and denomination. And the people that call what I now call, or is more commonly called in scholarly language, new religious movements, and are known as cults, aren't anything like that kind of cult. Cult in popular parlance now usually means a religion I don't like. Nobody says I belong to a cult. Somebody says you belong to a cult. So scholars in the 70s started to use the term new religious movements because there was a big wave of new religious movements that appeared then. Actually, they became visible then. A lot of them had appeared in the 50s. For example, Scientology and the Moonies, the Unification Church, were both founded in 54. But they became visible to everybody late 60s, 70s. And when the word cult was used, that just meant some organization that brainwashed you, abused children, um, exploited you, married you off to somebody, all sorts of things that some of them did do, but a lot of them didn't do. Mm. So we turned to the um, idea of new religious movement, but that was difficult because we were including a lot of 19th century sects, Mm. sects being a schism from a mainstream religion. Uh, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Exclusive Brethren, um, Christadelphian Salvation Army. So they weren't particularly new. I mean, even sometimes Quakers would be called new religious movements, and they're very old now. And all religions have been new at some time, obviously. Um, so uh, we, some of us started to use since the Second World War as meaning new, that it had appeared since then. And then that got difficult as they started to get change a lot and be very different. So now, for my work, I use new religious movements to mean first-generation membership movements. So that means they're converts, and a whole lot of things can follow from that, which is useful. And it's quite clear, well, up to a point it's clear, 
whether a movement is first generation or not. But there are difficulties because the Mormons, for example, have more converts and they have um, people who were born into the group, though it depends where you are. And if you're in Utah, most of them are pretty old and it's a sort of denomination there. Or it's a church probably in Utah, whereas in England it's a denomination. It's pretty respectable. Um, but if you go to Russia, it's seen as a cult or a sect. And there it does tend to be more converts. So nothing's very easy, but you've got to sort of be clear what you're talking about. So I start from first generation because certain things follow from that and it's useful. And concepts are more or less useful, not more or less true. Yeah, right. Um, And why why do you think that after the first generation, things tend to change in cults. Um, what What is it? is it? Is it a matter of leadership? You know, maybe a charismatic leader drifts off into the sunset or um, whatever they claim to do. Um, but what what is it about? Why is the first generation the one that you have been... Is it the one that you've been focusing on? Or is well, in the 70s, I was focusing on first generation. Right. But I'm so old now, and um, a lot of the people who I interviewed in the 70s, I'm still in touch with, but their children are now older than they were when I interviewed them. And so I know their grandchildren, and some of them are still in the movement, and some of them are outside. But I've kept in touch with a lot of them. And so I've had a chance to follow them from being a new religion to a second generation, now to a third generation. And to answer your question about the change, well, if, if you go back to why I use first generation or predominantly first generation for new religious movement, if you're a movement which is full of converts rather than people who've been bought into it, born into it, the converts tend to be far more enthusiastic, even fanatic, than somebody who's been born into a religion. Um, Secondly, they're atypical of the population. In the past, they've often appealed to the oppressed, socially or economically or politically oppressed. A lot of the um, new religions in the 70s were appealing actually to people who weren't particularly politically or economically oppressed. They were white, middle-class, young people on the whole. Not all. Rastafarians, for example, appealed to young black men. And there was other ones that appealed to older people. But whichever it was, it's atypical of the population. They'll appeal to a particular type of person. And then you mentioned the charismatic leader. And that means he or she has got some sort of authority or is given authority by his or her followers over a whole wide range of the person's life, the follower's life. And when they die... This um, obviously changes. A charismatic authority is unpredictable and unaccountable to anyone. The leader claims to be the one who's got a hotline to God or perhaps is God. So that's another characteristic. Sometimes when they have um, been around for a bit, if they grow large enough, which not all of them do, but if they do, they tend to get a sort of up-down, bureaucratic kind of organisation where the structure of power and authority goes from the top and also the culture, the information 
clothes from the top and you might get it difficult for people to talk at a horizontal level. Then um, another thing is that they change far more rapidly and radically. And then another thing is that they uh, tend to be treated with suspicion and often persecuted right. by the wider society because here they're coming. And if you've got a vested interest in society as it is, you're not going to like the new kid on the blog. Yeah, resistant yeah, to changes, right. Yeah, and you know, if, you, if you're a middle-class parents and you want your child to become a lawyer or a doctor and they go off and they follow some foreign messiah or guru and give up their university, then they're not very pleased. So why do they change? The second generation comes along, so it's no longer converts. They've been born into it. Um, the whole demographic structure changes. So for example, the children of God in the 1970s there was a sort of peak around 23 years of age, no children, no old people to look after. So here they are, young, healthy, well-educated, um, enthusiastic people who go around trying to bring Jesus into everybody's heart. Um, in the 90s, it's changed completely. The average age is still 23, but there are lots of kids and they are now older and more mature. And there are very few people who actually are 23. So if you just think of that demographic structure, they're, they're, having, you know, they're starting to get arthritis and they've had to invest time and money and resources in their kids. Mm. The charismatic leaders die, even those that say they're not going to, they usually happen to. Um, then you get more predictability, more accountability. Not always. Sometimes you get another charismatic leader, but that's not very often. Mm. It has happened, but not mm. that much. Um, they very often accommodate to society, or society gets used to them, or society changes. And so the antagonism isn't always as great as it was in the early days. And they become more accommodated to accommodating and accommodated by society. Right, and then... So, you know, and then it goes on from there. They become more normal or mainstream. Not all of them, but they have to work quite hard to stay sectarian. And some of them do, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. They remain very much fundamentalist in that they believe very strongly in their beliefs mm. and the Bible, the exclusive brethren or the, what do they call themselves now, the Christian, Christ, Christian brethren? No, there's something... I did a Christian Brethren Community Church. No, I can't remember. Anyway, mm. what used to be or popularly known as the Exclusive Brethren. Right. And they too um, are sort of cut off from society in a lot of ways. Mm. And do you... Sorry, that was rather a long No, answer. no, no. Well, I mean, you're, you're the expert. I, I'm, I'm the one who, um, who's asking you for, for clarity. Um, and... What what is so in 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 my studies? I've spent some time thinking about normativity and what it means for something to be considered normal. And what you just said alluded to this idea of a cult or a sect only being considered as something um, 
threatening or menacing based on what is considered to be normal. So, you know, a parent wants their child to go to university, presumably because that's a normal and, I don't know, trust trusted kind of avenue that someone can go down. Um, but, yeah, I mean, how, how do we, like, okay, to, to keep this as a question um, on cults, how do we know that cults and new religious organizations are actually going to be harmful because um inform uh your organization um it aims to provide objective evidence or objective information on these uh cults and i've actually watched a number of your interviews and a lot of people ask you this question about um you know whether whether the government has some ulterior motive or whether some funding body has some ulterior motive, but it just, I'm not sure. Like it, it seems like, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've thrown a very confusing and nebulous question at you, but yeah, I guess what, what, what is it about cults that people are afraid of? Is it the threat to normativity? Or? I think that's a lot of it. Yes. Okay. It's unusual. They don't know very often they're secretive and cut themselves off or they, they're not going to, you know, tell you about the skeletons in their cupboard. None of us do. I think it's important to make a distinction between what I call it, them and him. And by that, I mean, the organization itself, its structure, its culture, etc., the, the movement, which is sort of sociological aspects in a way him or perhaps her that's the leader and the rank and file members and each of these has different properties and asking what are they like you're asking a different question right. and actually I find the people who join are pretty normal um, I mean some of them have weird ideas but so do some of my family some of my students everybody I meet has <laughs> weird ideas um, so I don't think that they're, they're not crazy people who join they're often quite bright mm. um, perhaps socially slightly naive some of them but not necessarily and of course they differ between themselves That they're a sort of not a normal distribution, but fairly normal, because there isn't a normal distribution in a sense. Um, the organizations, they can have some weird beliefs. But if you think about it, um, there are a whole lot of people in this country who believe that somebody who was born to a virgin uh, a couple of million uh, millennia ago um, died and then was risen again right. is God or part of God and some of them believe that when they drink wine they're actually drinking his blood and eating the host is eating his body and some of them believe it's transferred now that's pretty weird if you know you, you're not brought up as a Christian when you take it for granted so people's ideas can be pretty weird mm. And there are people who are sort of staunch atheists who are also pretty weird in some of their beliefs. Yeah, right. I mean, I've got an enormous admiration for Richard Dawkins, but some of what he says I think is definitely weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, 
And I, I think a lot of the, the leaders are or become um, different in a sort of way. Quite often they're accused of being narcissistic, and some of them are, undoubtedly. Um, and that can be pretty frightening. They can be very controlling. They're not all, but they can be. I mean, the very fact that their followers look up to them in this way is something. And that says something about the followers as well. I mean, you can't be a charismatic leader unless an you audience, have your followers. Yeah. Uh, Hugo Gruen, the rabbi, used to tell a story about uh, a mother who took her uh, little boy to a summer camp and was asked questions about him by the organizers, and they said, is Johnny a leader or a follower? And she answered, oh, he's the leader. But trouble is, nobody will follow him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, sometimes people lose their charismatic following, and their followers sort of say, no, <laughs> we mm. don't believe you anymore, and they leave. Mm. Um, and people do leave. The turnover is enormous. The myth of brainwashing is, is absolute rubbish. Mm. Well, that's what you showed in, in your book. Well, that was certainly the case mm. as far as the Moonies went. They'd have liked to have mm. been able to brainwash people, but they weren't very successful at it just, you know, because the majority of people didn't. And even those who'd been brought up since I wrote the book, the first cohort of the second generation, 90% of them left. Wow. But not of the second cohort of the second generation because the movement had changed by then. It saw all its kids leaving. And here were the blessed children who were meant to be born without original sin. Mm. And um, so they did quite a bit and they changed sometimes quite, you know, overtly, and sometimes it just sort of happened. Or it was a readjustment. Right. Um, so now if you meet a unificationist, you probably wouldn't know it was a unificationist, whereas in the 70s, you'd, um, know. <laughs> you'd know. Yeah, right. So what does that mean for, for what place does brainwashing have today in, I mean, are we to believe reports of, North Koreans being brainwashed? Are we to believe reports of, you know, the Chinese um, reintegration camps being kind of, are they, are they working around a framework that is... Well, they work with is, some people. Right. But they don't work with everyone. Um, certainly, I know a bit more about China and South Korea than I know, but I've never been to North Korea, but I've been to China a lot. I spent two weeks with the police in China for 10 years. Wow. And I would meet the re-educated Falun Gong people and um, but also speak to people who were sort of quietly practicing Falun Gong, not in public anymore, but still Post believed Post re-education program. Yes, wow. and I've got um, people who I know here. One of them came and had lunch with me a couple of weeks ago who was in prison for some time in China and um, she had to sign something saying, I, I renounce it. In the end, she did, because that was the only way she could get out. Right. And um, she's still, I wouldn't like to say fanatic, but she's still a very strong believer, practices every day and yeah, right. believes in it. Mm. Um, bra brainwashing, it implies that you cut open their brain and sort of have a whole lot of soap powder or something. <laughs> and nice that's, little. you know, it's a metaphor. <laughs> Coercion, undue influence, the, the, these, that certainly does take place. Mm. There's no doubt about that. But it happens in the family. It happens in the Marines. 
Um, well, how how is it possible to be free from that kind well, of? Well, it isn't. Yeah, I mean, we're all affected, mm. but sometimes there's more choice open to us. Right. Um, we've got more freedom. I mean, the whole idea of freedom, choice, free will, what does it all mean? I mean, you, you could become sort of circular and fatalistic. If you've been looking at philosophy, you know you could just go around in corners. <laughs> and that's why when I studied the Moonies, when everybody was saying they were brainwashed in the 70s, I, it took me a long time to work out how I could address the question whether they were brainwashed or not um, because of the philosophical problems of defining choice and defining um, free will. Mm. But in the end, the statistics helped me because then I could say that so many went through the same process and did not become, this meant that there wasn't something that was just being done by the unificationists. There must have been something in the individual that they could draw on to say yes or no. And therefore, certain people would find what they were offering fitted into what they wanted. Right. But then the majority of them would leave, actually, within a couple of years because they found they weren't getting it. Right. So... You know, obviously they weren't completely controlled. I think there are situations, and I think probably the Uyghurs at the moment in um, China are put under far heavier. They're, they're physically controlled, which unificationists never had physical control. And we were told that places in California, there was one place that I went to um, for one of their so-called brainwashing weekends in California, and I was told it was cut off by a great gorge and you couldn't escape if you wanted. And um, I... Was it anything like that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I actually walked across the great gorge and wow. got my ankle slightly wet. <laughs> ah, well, it must have been a very um, great gorge. Then. A very great gorge. It was, well, it was just a little dike. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was out quite a long way. Um, I actually went to a lawyer who's one of the LSE alumni uh, who I had met and took my case before I went for the weekend. And I said, if I'm not back on Monday, send the police in to get me. And we were both rather disappointed when I was delivered back on, <laughs> to San Francisco on Monday. With <laughs> no problem at wow, all. Wow. Um, but they, they certainly put pressure on you and they used a lot of techniques, some of which, you know, were... Um, deceptive and that this happens but it, it happens everywhere well yeah think about you know when as soon that doesn't as mean to say it's good I'm saying if it happens everywhere for people to be deceptive yeah Sorry. yeah but um, it, it does you know it's not all that special no it's not and I imagine that um, at least I feel like my generation has been subjected to immense amounts of coercion and manipulation through social media and advertising. I mean, mm. everywhere we go, we're being sold an image of, you know, a smilier, happier, more pleasant, more productive life if we buy X. And, you know, how different, really, how different is X from, I mean, well, yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm not going to speculate as to what, you know, the the cults are actually saying or these organize, organizations are actually saying during their um, brainwashing weekends. But really, yeah, I mean, 
I one of my friends um, went into the Church of Scientology and said, "Hey, sign me up, please." And he walked out two hours later with a few contracts that he had, or a few forms that he had to fill in. And I think initially the kind of beginner beginners packages that he had to buy were around about five thousand pounds. That's at the um, beginning. Yeah, I think, oh, um, like he's, he's, you know, I think he really sold his interest in them. But, you know, if, if the objective is money, then, um, yeah, we, you know, how different is that from advertising? But what, um, what do you, have you ever been afraid? Have you ever felt vulnerable or susceptible to the teachings of any of the cults that you've been around? Or do you feel like you are just, you know, maybe more robust and are aware of the kind of freedom that you can have in your life. And so you you carry that with you into the cult spaces. And I've always found them eminently resistible. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> no, I've never felt I wanted to. I've admired a lot of them okay. and bits of some of them I admire a lot and I admire a lot of people like right. them. Some of them are creeps. I don't like them at all. Um, it varies, you know, it's it's wide range. There are over a thousand new religions, by which now I mean appeared since the Second World War, right. that are currently active in the UK at the moment. Wow, 1,000? That's how many we've got on our informed database, and we've got over 5,000 different religious organizations on our base. Wow. So there's lots. Some of them are tiny, of course. And they're changing the whole time. The ter- turnover is pretty high. Mm. But do you do you think the reason why you ha- they are imminently resistible is that because you know that they aren't going to give you anything that you can't get from? Well, perhaps they could, but <laughs> I I just don't. I mean, my curiosity is about people, and I'm not particularly interested in the theology. Right except why people are attracted to the theology. I, I reckon I can't work out whether there's a God or not. Right. And um, Really? Really? Yeah, I have no okay. idea if there is. There might be or there might not be. Okay, so I you mean, don't, you're, you're not... You know, I, I haven't learned a scientific experiment that will prove it. Oh, yeah, I yeah, haven't yeah. had a blinding flash of light, um, possibly because I'm insensitive or not <sighs> spiritual enough. Right. On the other hand, I don't think I can say there is no God. There might be, yeah. But um, okay. I don't. I don't. But I'm. I'm not particularly concerned or interested about it. Okay. Um, I'm interested in people, and I'm interested as a sociologist in how they live together, right. how they're controlled, and the relationship between the individual and society, and that's what fascinates me. And if you're studying new religious movements, at least in the beginning, they're quite small. So you can have access to far more of the movement. You can get a more holistic picture of them. And they tend to be far more homogeneous. Whereas if you're trying to study the Catholic Church or the Church of England Mm. now, I mean, there's just so many bits of it. And it's um, most of it... I won't say it's boring, but um, it it would be more difficult. It's well, perhaps it was just happen chance that um, I, I happened to find myself interested in the new religion. Some of them get pretty big fairly quickly. Mm. Well, I the reason why where I actually I, the first time I came across your um, you was in a podcast about 
cryptocurrency, the missing crypto oh, queen. No, you I haven't into... heard that yet. Okay. I must uh, listen to it. People uh, keep saying it's, I mean, your um, part was very interesting. Um, the, narra- the narrator, he ha- he's... It's Jamie. Yeah, the uh, BBC guy. Yeah. Um, he's a, he's an, I'm sure he's a very nice man, but he mm. kind of... He has this really frustrating narrating style, but I won't let that... Um, dissuade you I from must listening. Listen to you, it. you should, you should. Yeah. It's very it's incredible. Um but there there and I I have felt sometimes um I'm not sure whether it's coincided with moments of uh you know insecurity of various kinds or self-consciousness but some I've sometimes I've felt a drive to be part of something and perhaps fortunately i've never been sold i've never been sold anything i've never been told that you know if i buy this or if i go to this place once a week i will have the answers but over over the is it 40 years that you've been doing this work 50 40 nearly 50 nearly 50 over the nearly 50 years that you've been thinking about these kinds of questions 50 50 wow well hey congratulations that's that's um that's a very long time um but is there do you have an awareness or do you have a richer understanding of what it is about our species that so that can so desperately crave an answer to to its existence to its purpose well i think we're social animals and i think you touched on something when you said about belonging and a lot of people do join because they get a sense of belonging to a group that has similar kind of beliefs or wishes or hopes to them, something that clicks. I mean, I actually felt when I first went to LSE, something click. Here were um, a community of people who were asking the sort of questions I was asking, mm. interested in them, didn't necessarily agree with them, but at least they were interested. And, you know, I, I sort of felt a kind of belonging to the academic community, I suppose. And I found that all over the world. I mean, I do an enormous amount of travel. I'm afraid my carbon footprint is disgraceful. <laughs> Eileen. Uh, <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm feeling really bad about it. But um, I sort of get drawn every time a new request comes for me to go and somewhere I, I, I go out of curiosity. I, I, I've cut back a bit, but um, why am I telling you this? Oh, it's this sort of belonging to a community of people who are curious, I suppose. Right. I certainly found a lot of people would say, I felt I'd come home. That's something I've heard over and over again. I felt I'd come home. And a lot of the ones that um, I was studying that appeared in the 70s, um, they they would provide a sort of womb-like protection in a way. And often these people had come not from bad families, but from good families, which were very womb-like. And then they grew up and they wanted to get out of it, but they didn't want to be sort of completely in the wide world with nothing. So this offered them something where they could get away from their parents and sort of say, I'm me. But But yet, still within the womb. And then after a couple of years, 
they could leave the, that womb and sort of go and re-relate with their parents at a different level. Right. At a more equal level. Do you think? Do you think the fact that people are drawn to womb-like structures outside of the womb-like structure of the family? Do you think? Do you think that says something about our, you know, Western society that that there aren't kind of nationally or state produced bodies that people, apart from like maybe universities or things, but otherwise I can't really think of many like very consuming things that one can do. Uh, apart from you oh, uni- you could belong to a football club but, but you know that's it's um, it's ephemeral you know it's once a week you train you play on sundays but these you should meet my son-in-law <laughs> in manchester united oh my goodness uh, well i should somebody meet else came over is um had dinner with us the other night who lives in germany and he'd come over for the match wow and um i can't remember which match it was because i know nothing about football but my son-in-law happened to phone and they were talking to each other <laughs> for about an hour. <laughs> wow. Um, it's something. I mean, church is another one. I mean, in the old days, you did have a kind of extended family or you were likely to have the same sort of job as mm. your parents had right. and live in the same village or nearby, whereas mm. now you're not likely to have the same job as your grandparents do certainly not to live in the same place. Mm. And do you think that has an influence on on our sense of belonging? I think it does, yes. Um, I mean, some of us are jolly glad that we don't. (laughs) I'd have found it very claustrophobic. And in fact, when I'm staying with one of the groups, a fortnight is about as much as I can stand. I, I just want to be free and or... I don't feel trapped. I like them and everything, but I just don't want to be... That isn't me. Mm. Uh, It doesn't appeal to me particularly. Not all groups live in communities, of course, and that becomes less likely as time goes on, partly because they need to get out to get money and they don't want to be controlled, Mm. but some of them do. Um, And the sense of belonging, you, you don't have to live with people. I mean... Choirs, that's another sense of belonging. There are all sorts of unions. Um, there, there are lots of little organisations, but churches are an obvious place to join, and mm. they're still there. The ones that demand more um, will appeal to a certain kind of person rather right. than, you know, the Church of England where there are five old ladies and no central heating. <laughs> It's not very sort of, you know, you can have coffee and biscuits afterwards. Right. Well, it's um, rather going away now. Mm. Okay, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I've i just never... Motorbikes, that's another. Oh, bikers. yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm not sure if you know about the biking Gardeners. situation in Australia, but it's pretty much impossible to be a bikey now. There, yeah. were, there were these really draconian laws introduced where if you're part of a gang, you can't be within you know, two kilometres of another bikey. And even if you're caught in the same space, you both get arrested or something. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so Eileen, don't go to Australia to pursue your, your biker ways. Well, I was going oh. to go to New Zealand, actually, and wondering about popping over to Australia <laughs> while I was um, there. But I, are you going there for work? Or? Yeah, there's, there's a conference there okay. that 
But I don't know now with the virus whether I'll yeah, go. Yeah, the virus. I wow. was meant to be going to Korea in um, May, but I. Th- That's fallen through. Japan in August. Wow. Was, I'm very. If I meant to be going in a few weeks to Czechoslovakia, and got an email this morning saying, "Don't buy your ticket yet." And it's you know, traveling traveling is now. It isn't it's just the stifled, carbon print yeah, yeah. footprint; it's the viral yeah, footprint the vi- <laughs> or viral fingerprint. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow! Um, okay. Um, hmm. So one one thing that that still really puzzles me is how, because I I said before that one thing that really one thing that I felt at times is the drive to be part of something like the group that we we're talking about and upon reflection i realized that i have been a part of many different groups i played football i play tennis i'm at university i have this podcast and i guess one of the goals of the podcast is to try and make it into as much of a group as possible so i can have this virtual kind of, community yeah virtual community well a lot of the new religions are virtual now yeah video games and, and yep. all sorts of things um but but I'd, I've never felt as though my experience with belonging has been comparable to the experience of, I guess, the only, time, the only exposure I've really had to people's experiences with cults have been through Louis Theroux documentaries or, um, and then recently coming across your work. Um, but I've never felt like I've wanted to be consumed by anything. And I wonder Sorry? whether... And that, that's okay, but I wonder whether there is some... Like, wh- have you... Have you... Have you made any kind of... Have you had any um, moments of insight into the psychology of of human beings as to <laughs> whether, you know, some people are more... Like some people crave that more, and that's a reason why, or a, a really big reason why they join cults. People join for very different reasons, right. sometimes political reasons. They right. want to make the world better. A lot of them offer. Some of them want to get nearer to God. Some of them want to have better relationships. I mean, something like Scientology offers you better relationships, communication skills, and things like that. Um, a whole lot of the human potential movement does that. Um, people, the movements offer different things and people are attracted by different things. Some people swap around, you know, they'll do TM in the morning, then go to their yoga class and do a bit of mindfulness and Mm. then go and sort of sit in front of the Buddha or what have you. Others will stick with one particular. Um, I mean, personally, I think, I haven't really thought about this before, but... I don't particularly want to belong to a group. I'm, I'm greedy. I, I like exploring new things, new mm. people. But I've got a sort of group of friends, most of whom are similarly interested in the new religions, who are in different countries and who I'm in touch with most days or at least most weeks by email. So I have a kind of virtual community, but we get together frequently. Um, I prefer 
having a lot of people who I may not see that much, but I'm in touch with and I can pick up with because I know we share certain knowledge and certain values and interests. And that's fine for me. Mm. I don't feel a great sense of needing to be enveloped in Jesus' love or have a cosy little sort of cluster of friends who are there watching my every move. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, and do you, do you think that, do you think that, that we will always have, that there will always be people like you? I feel like I, my relationship to the world is similar to yours. I, my preference is to be, fr to be as free as possible and kind of as nomadic as possible. I kind of, I try and I also haven't been very conscious about my carbon footprint. I feel like, I mean, I'm from, I was raised in Melbourne and Melbourne is very far from London. Um, and I've made that trip a few times. Um, but do you always feel like we will have organizations and new religious movements and cults all, do you feel like we'll always have these groups or people who promise to answer the questions of what it means to be us? Do you think that? Yeah. Okay. And we have for the last 3000 years yeah. plus plus. Right. And even because <coughs> I think it's a good thing. Right. Right. But Richard Dawkins and you know, this, the new atheists, Sam Harris, I'm not sure if you're familiar with yeah. those kinds of people, but they, they're convinced that the scientific method will be able to explain everything about consciousness, about purpose, about all sorts of things. But I don't believe that even if certain people are presented with that information, it's going to change anything. No, I think we've learned a lot um, through science, but it's asking different questions. I, I d science can't tell me why I love Mozart and not the who or what have you. Um, I mean, my spiritual side, I suppose, comes in music and nature. So I feel more affinity with pagans sometimes, but I, I get, I, I don't want to belong to a coven or um, go through a whole lot of rituals necessarily, but I, I enjoy and get great pleasure from nature mm. and I admit classical, uh, some modern music, but mainly classical music. And I don't think science, science can explain, I mean, it's very reductionist to think that science can complain it. You can say what neurons are moving and, you know, what, what is the necessary condition for it. But man is a social animal and woman is a social animal. And um, <clears throat> it's, the, there are regularities, but not laws. We're learning more the whole time. Mm. And that is opening more opportunities in some ways, but also closing them. There are things we can do now that we couldn't do before, but there are things we can't do. You know, society both constrains and enables us. Mm. And there's just so many ways. Anthropology is exciting in that sense because it shows us things that we just wouldn't think of doing, or but people just take for granted. I... I can't see a, a real 1984, but 
I wouldn't like to live in North Korea. Right. And um, I'm very, very fond of the Chinese people, and I loved going there and even being in police custody for two weeks every year. <laughs> you loved it? Yeah, oh. because I liked the people, and I was learning a whole lot. Right, right. I thought you meant that you'd actually been... In like well, it in is like being in police <laughs> custody because I, I stay with them right. in their hotel. Uh, uh, they call it. But a it's hotel. benevolent police custody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. voluntary. Voluntary, yes. <laughs> Except when I'm there, I, I I would only go somewhere with the police. Mm. I, I I never went off by myself. Mm. Or very, very occasionally, but they knew where I was the whole time. Because I, I joke with them and say I'm in police custody. If I wanted to meet any of the underground movements, I had to do that another time. Right. I bet they would have loved those jokes. Well, they've got sense of humour. <laughs> They're nice. I, li I like them as people, but that's the difference again between it and them. Mm. And I mean, I, I don't. Well, I admire President Xi, I suppose, but I abhor what he's doing, um, especially as it relates to religion. Yeah, right. And um, I dislike you know, what, what, what a lot of the law enforcement culture and structure is. Mm. But the people, some of them are horrid and some of them are lovely. And I really count as friends. Mm and can learn a lot from them mm. and see a different perspective. Mm. So I was sort of, it's kind of Monty Python. I rather like seeing round corners and something, mm. the unexpected in the normal and the normal in the unusual. Mm. Um, okay, well, Eileen, I think we've covered very much and I'm very grateful for you talking to me today. So, um, I, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything else Great. I'd like to ask okay. you. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you. Feeling okay, it's not great, it's more like I'm great all day, but